Hello, survivalists. This is The Crux, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh. And this is my co-host, the great and powerful, the one and only, Oz. (laughs) Tessa King. (laughs) Today's story includes some terrifying shark details. So, if, if you're a small child or really scared of sharks or easily grossed out, then you might want to catch us next week. What if I am all of the above? Um, then you're just going to have to deal. <laughs> That's I'll, very compassionate of you. Thanks. I know. Well, you're my sister, so I don't have to be nice to you. Mm, okay. <laughs> Fair. Um, also, if you guys love hearing our stories, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It warms our hearts right up when you have nice things to say and keeps the motivation going to tell you more stories. And we like telling stories. Especially to you. You're the best. (laughs) Especially you, Australia. Yeah. We see you. (laughs) We see you. We appreciate you. Okay, so today I will be telling Deborah Scaling Kylie's story and the sailing experience that would never be forgotten. Deborah was a talented young sailor with a lot of experience who was hired to transport a yacht from Maine to Florida in the fall of 1981. Things were briefly going well until the second day when they came upon a large storm. Deborah Scaling Kylie was born January 21st of 1958 in Throckmorton, Texas. She started sailing when she was very young and began working as a crew member on yachts. She had a lot of experience working on the East Coast, honing in on her sailing ability. In 1981, she became the first woman to complete the Whitbread Round the World Race. The Whitbread Round the World Race is a yacht race around the world, which is now called the Ocean Race. The important thing to realize about the Whitbread Round the World Race is that it takes some serious dedication. It departs Europe in October and has 9 to 10 legs, with stops over, stopovers in many city ports along the way. The crews race day and night for 20 days at a time on some of the legs. That's crazy. Yeah. To reduce the weight, the crews rely on freeze-dried food and often only bring one change of clothing. They also are exposed to wide temperature swings from minus 5 to plus 40 Celsius, which is 23 to 104 degrees Fahrenheit. So a lot of variation. What do they do for water? I'm not really sure. I didn't read anything about that. But all of this said, Deborah was clearly a seasoned sailor. She had a ton of experience for her young age. On October 1982, Deborah was hired by a billionaire to crew a brand new 58-foot luxury sailing yacht called Trashman. <laughs> yeah, it's a glorious name, right? Do you want to yeah. know? Do you want to know why? I absolutely do. So it's named after the man who bought it, who made his money in the trash slash rubbish industry. Okay, well, I'm glad it wasn't like an ex-lover. <laughs> <laughs> True. So. Um, They were hired to transport it 1,300 miles or 2,092 kilometers down the eastern seaboard of the USA from Bar Harbor, Maine to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Deborah was the most experienced sailor of the group, and she was 26 at the time. In the first ever episode of I Shouldn't Be Alive, she called herself, quote, an adrenaline junkie, end quote. 
before we go on, I want to say that a lot of material used in this episode came from that one source. Even source material I found in other locations was directly quoted from the episode. And also, the show I Shouldn't Be Alive is my jam, by the way. Kind of inspired this podcast. I really like it. Have you ever watched it, Tessa? Um, I've seen a few episodes. Anyway, at the start of the trip, Deborah was joined on the boat by Captain John Lippeth and his girlfriend Meg Mooney and Brad Kavanaugh. None of them had ever sailed together before. Deborah said that John Lippeth had an impressive resume, which may have encouraged her to sign up on this trip to begin with. Meg Mooney, John's girlfriend, was not a boatman. She was just along for the ride. Deborah said in an article by Elizabeth by Elizabeth <laughs> Edwardson for the Associated Press that Meg was, quote, a fair-weather sailor on a joyride, end quote. Brad was the youngest on board, and he signed on because Deborah was going. And how old was he? Um, it didn't mention how old Brad was at the time. He was a decent sailor, but he wasn't quite as experienced as Deborah was. On the first day, Deborah said that, quote, the weather was beautiful. The boat was fun to steer. It really didn't get much better than it was right then. After they left Maine, they stopped in Annapolis, Maryland to pick up Mark Adams, the fifth member of the crew. Deborah said that Mark was condescending and chauvinistic. Trash man. Yeah. <laughs> Just exactly somebody that you want to sail with for a few days. Mm-hmm. Trash man on the trash man. Yeah. I'm sorry. I know nothing about this guy. So this is not my opinion, by the way. <laughs> when they left Annapolis, they were getting along. They were all getting along. And they were excited to start the trip. The sailing was easy during the day. And they were on schedule. The weather was beautiful. Even early in the evening, it was beautiful. But when they reached the Gulf Stream of North Carolina, it became evident that the weather was about to change. The clouds were dark on the horizon, and by nightfall, the crew was in the middle of a thrashing storm with large crashing waves and high winds. Deborah mentioned in the I Shouldn't Be Alive episode that she could tell right away that this storm was building momentum and that it was more than a squall, which usually passes quickly. Mark was on deck, yelling and whooping, and Deborah thought he had been drinking. During the out-of-control wave roller coaster, Meg was on deck for an unknown reason, and she was tossed on her back when the boat moved suddenly. Deborah stated, quote, She rolled over slightly, and you could see the bruising begin. And it was all through the kidney area. I could just tell that she was in so much pain. End quote. The captain didn't have a nautical chart for this part of the ocean. Per National Ocean Service, a nautical chart is one of the most fundamental tools available to the mariner. It is a map that depicts the configuration of the shoreline and sea floor. It provides water depths, location of dangers to navigation, location and characteristics of aids to navigation, anchorages, and other features. The nautical chart is essential for safe navigation. Mariners use charts to plan voyages and navigate ships safely and economically. Federal regulation require most commercial vessels to carry electronic or paper nautical charts while they transit U.S. waters. So obviously he's going against the grain in not having this. In a bad way. In a bad way. 
Now, this lack of planning on the part of the captain was a bad omen for things to come. Brad and Deborah went up on deck, and things were wildly out of control. The captain had called the Coast Guard, who advised them to go to Wilmington, North Carolina. But when they turned the boat in the direction of the coast, the waves started impacting the boat with such force, and they were never able to actually crest over the wave. They were just sliding back into the trough of the wave. All the sails were torn off. The captain went to the engine to see if there was a way to power through the waves. The alarms went off and the engine overheated and died. And they lost their ability to charge the batteries. They lose power quickly without the engine, which means they lose the ability to contact anyone with the radio. It goes from bad to worse. Yep. The captain called the Coast Guard back to give an SOS. And he was told that two ships, the Essex Huntington and the Gypsum King, were four hours away. And the Coast Guard told these other vessels to respond to the SOS. Deborah said that that was the kiss of death because it gave them a false sense of hope. And Mark actually expressed disgust that they had called the Coast Guard for assistance because apparently this is an act of weakness in his mind. Oh, he was too proud. Mm-hmm. The, the crew had been going at it for 12 hours in 40 to 50 foot waves when Debbie and Brad decided to rest since help was on its way. Mm-hmm. Debbie could hear Mark still like whooping and hollering out on the deck. Mark eventually tied off the helm and goes to bed. So the helm is what allows for steering for all of you non-sailor people. Thank you. <laughs> Brad is unable to sleep, and things start to go from bad to worse in terms of the storm. The boat was going all around in the water because there was no way to control the direction without sails or a motor. They crested a huge wave like a surfer on a board, and when they got to the top of the wave, the boat fell off the crest to the ocean below sideways. Horrifying. When the yacht once again met the ocean, the impact broke open one of the windows and the boat began sinking. No, stop. Deborah said, quote, I get up on that deck and it was like a slow motion dream. I don't know how to describe it. It was just gray and it was crazy and it was tumultuous. And I looked around and there was nothing and we're going down and we're going down fast. You don't think about dying. You don't think about drowning. You don't think about anything. You think about getting away from this boat that is going underwater and it is sinking in less than two minutes. It's going to drown like a big rock. End quote. It sounds surreal. I think it was. And unexpected. With all of her experience, she clearly wasn't at least initially overly worried. You know, the fact that she and Brad went back underneath the deck to get some rest. I can't imagine if I was on the boat resting in those circumstances. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're not even worried. Yeah. At this point... They grabbed a small inflatable dinghy from the deck. This dinghy is called the 11-foot Zodiac. So we'll post a picture on Instagram for you to look at. And John, Brad, and Deborah bail from the boat, and they're clinging to the upside-down Zodiac, just flailing around in the water. Mark grabbed the life raft and threw it in the ocean. Immediately, the canister inflated to blow up the life raft. Mm-hmm. But instead of holding on to it, he lets it go. So it flies away. Yep. Just 
goner immediately and they couldn't go after it because what if you don't make it to the yeah if you don't make it and you're out in the middle of the water yeah of 50 foot waves yeah oh i bet they were so mad everything that they needed to survive was in that lifeboat it had emergency beacon device which a plane could pick up on fresh water makers food fish hooks mirrors signaling devices rations flares first aid equipment and maybe even a radio everything everything they needed in the zodiac there was nothing nobody had been able to get anything from the yacht as it was going down yeah and she said it would go down in about two minutes so there was not enough time there to wasn't any time mark joined them on the zodiac after he let go of the life raft and everybody hated mark <laughs> i think they hated him even before that moment yeah, but even more so now. even more so on the life raft or excuse me on the zodiac right now we have captain john debbie mark and brad they're all just holding onto this upside down dinghy and thrashing around in the ocean and then they realize that meg was in the rigging on the ship that's going down and she was too afraid to leave the boat she was too afraid because the water was crashing and huge waves and she had no experience in anything even remotely similar to this so Debbie actually had to go back for her. The group of five watched as the ocean swallowed Trash Man. Deborah said that watching the Trash Man go down was the most devastating and loneliest feeling she experienced in her life. Once they were all together on the dinghy, they were just trying to stay afloat as they waited for the Coast Guard. The weather was gray in the morning and the storm was still ongoing at that point. They got under the boat to stay warm, but Meg wouldn't do it because she was too claustrophobic. Brad said they devised a system where they positioned their bodies suspended by a line that they had rigged like logs in a fire so they could share body heat in attempts to stay warm. Deborah guessed the winds were 40 degrees or 4 degrees Celsius, blowing 90 knots, which is 103 miles per hour or 165 kilometers per hour. Yeah, so they're freezing. I mean, it sounded like when they were underneath the dinghy and they were all together, that it was actually kind of peaceful. Mm -hmm. They were out of the wind. If you were in the wind, it would be miserable. Which Meg is in the wind. She's holding on to the outside of the dinghy, which is probably really exhausting because it's really cold. At some point, because of this, because of Meg being outside of the boat and unwilling to go underneath, they decided to flip it because they're worried about her. When they flip the boat and they get Meg in it, they realize that she has large gashes on her legs, which she's gotten from the rigging when the boat was going down. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. This is where the sharks come in, isn't it? You're you're ruining the story, okay? You already said that there were sharks. Okay, well, let's, let's not get too hasty, okay? So her legs were gaping open on the shins. Mark got back into the water because he was cold, and Deb was still in the water at this point, so they're hanging onto the outside of the dinghy. He was holding onto the Zodiac, again, next to Deb. And Mark starts making comments about Deborah kicking him, like, hey, would you stop kicking me? Like, move over. Oh, no. Quit kicking me. Oh, no, it's not her, is it? Oh, no. Deborah looks into the water, and she saw something that at first she thought was merely a fish. On a closer look, however, she realized in terror that she was looking at some torpedo-bodied creatures and realized that she was looking at a sea of great white sharks. 
In the episode, again, for I Shouldn't Be Alive, she stated, quote, I realized it was hundreds of sharks. They were everywhere. The minute we got in, there were fins everywhere in the, in the water. I don't mean like two or three. I mean 10, 20. They were everywhere, end quote. So I think what she's meaning there is once they got into the boat and they started looking around the boat, mm-hmm. they could see them everywhere. It's really an inflatable, it's like an inflatable kayak or it's not yeah. hard to describe. You'll have to look at the picture. The great white sharks were attracted to the area by Meg's continuously bleeding leg, which I was wondering why it didn't attract them sooner. And my only thought would be the water was so, the water force was so strong that it was kind of washing it away to the mm-hmm. point where they weren't coming into one direct location. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, you might be right. Somebody weigh in on this. Well, I read on LiveScience.com that great white sharks can detect one drop of blood in 25 gallons, or 100 liters, of water. And they can sense even a little blood up to three miles or five kilometers away, according to National Geographic. And um, they use their acute sense of smell to detect blood using the olfactory bulb, which humans have olfactory bulbs too. But obviously sharks are way more sensitive that's kind of crazy to think about right Mm -hmm. so what kind of so three mile radius around think about how many sharks could be pulled in in that in that amount of of uh space you're not selling sailing for me casey (laughs) okay i'm not selling it for myself either really (laughs) they were fearful that night of the cold because they're wet and it's windy but they were fearful that if the dinghy got flipped over from the harsh weather, they would be back in shark-infested waters. It's a nice thought as you're trying to settle in for the night, right? It rained that night, the second night, but they weren't able to get enough to drink. It was like a windswept drizzle. And they had nothing to collect water in anyway. Thankfully, they made it through the night. On the third day, they really began to suffer. And things became extremely bleak. There was no help in sight. They had no provisions and they were becoming dehydrated and they were starting to starve. Was it hot? Mm Mm-hmm. Meg's leg injuries were infected and she became very weak. And And she'd been holding on to that dinghy that whole time through the wind. Earlier on, yep. Yep. And um, they were all suffering from staph infections just from little open wounds and cuts and things that they obtained when the boat was going down. Mm -hmm. And you can see how easy that could happen. Or even after that point, even once they were on the dinghy. Deborah dropped a bomb and told the group that the Coast Guard was not coming for them. And everyone was shocked that she said it. And it was like that was the one thing everybody was holding on to hope for. And she just squashed it. I just think she wanted to be honest and realistic. At that point, the group became divided. It was John and his girlfriend, Meg, who was kind of not really participating in this division because she wasn't able to, and Mark versus Deb and Brad. And Deborah said that Brad was her survival partner, and she would not let anything get in the way of that. John and Mark were aggressive and argumentative. Deborah did not get involved in the bickering. She just sensed that they were going to die, and she realized that it was a waste of energy. Mark and John lost their senses sometime that day and began to drink salt water despite Deborah and Brad's attempts to stop them. Yike. 
of course, we all know this is a bad idea. And I'm sure at one point they understood this as well. Here's a description from USGS website of what happens to your body when you drink seawater. Seawater is toxic to humans because your body is unable to get rid of salt that comes from the seawater. Your body's kidneys normally remove excess salt by producing urine, but the body needs fresh water to dilute the salt in your body for the kidneys to work properly. Normally, that is not a problem as you are always drinking water and eating food with water. Tissue in your body also contains fresh water that can be used, but if there's too much salt in your body, your kidneys cannot get enough fresh water to dilute the salt and your body will fail. Symptoms of high salt intake include increased thirst, brain dysfunction, muscle twitching, seizures, followed by coma and death. It's a death sentence is what it is. Deborah assumed it would be about seven hours after the men drank the seawater that the effects would kick in. And she was right. By the morning of the fourth day, both Mark and John were having hallucinations and delusions. Deborah said that it was intolerable and monotonous and like they were spectators of some strange play. At some point during the day, John thought he could see land and would not be convinced otherwise. He dove into the water and started to swim towards a patch of land he thought he saw and told him that he was, quote, going to get the car. Oh, my gosh. Are there still a lot of sharks in the water? Dun, dun, dun. Mm -hmm. Deborah recalled the experience. Quote, all of a sudden, we just hear this shrill scream, blood curdling. Then it was over. Silence. There was no crying. Nothing. There was no doubt about what got him. The sharks got him. End quote. And that was Meg's boyfriend. She just said, he's gone. This is the worst story ever. <laughs> Shortly after that, Mark said that he had to go to the 7-Eleven to buy a beer and cigarettes. Stop it, Mark. Deborah and Brad tried to stop him, but he just told them, I have to go out and stretch my legs. He stepped right off the side of the boat. Deborah said, quote, we feel this bam, and then we feel this bam again. There's a frenzied attack and the sharks are eating Mark underneath the dinghy. It was without a doubt the most horrifying moment in my entire life, end quote. The sharks have been fighting for Mark underneath the dinghy. And after the sharks got a taste for blood, they wanted more they're, where that came they're from. They're even more wild. It's crazy. He must have been so delusional after watching your friend die or knowing what happened. I don't think it... That's what I mean. You have yeah. to be so delusional yeah. to have that happen so close to you and hear the screams and man. Yeah. In some ways, you know, it was going to be a bad ending no matter what. It really, that's a horrible way to go. I'm not saying it's not, but either way he was, he was going to die for sure. Even if he had medical attention in that moment, he may have already been in kidney failure. You know, maybe mm -hmm. it was irreversible. I don't know. I'm just saying it was and seven a, hours is a pretty short window. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's when it's starting to kick in, but even still. The sharks tried to flip the dinghy for hours upon hours after Mark went in the water. They're so smart. They know that they're there. I know. They just kept ramming into that raft. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? I mean, the whole thing is terrifying, but specifically that. After this horrific experience, Deborah felt like she might have a nervous breakdown. And meanwhile, Meg is experiencing intolerable suffering. 
Her infection has gotten so extreme that her leg was turning black. Oh my gosh. She just become catatonic, meaning she wasn't moving or speaking. She eventually started to hallucinate and that evening was speaking in tongues and moving her hands around in the air like, Deborah said, a Spanish dancer. Deborah said that that experience watching Meg die was tragic. And I can't imagine how horrible that would be. There's nothing you can do. The three of them at this point were sitting in the dinghy that was filled with many terrible things, including urine, blood, and infection. There was no way of cleaning it out. Brad and Deborah fell asleep for a while, and when they awoke on the fifth day, Meg had passed away and was lying on the bottom of the dinghy in the fetid water. Brad was hungry enough to consider eating Meg's body that day. Ugh. But Deborah had the state of mind to redirect Brad since Meg had been riddled with infection. Yeah, they, that's a good point. Yeah, that would not be a good choice. They removed her clothing and jewelry to return to her family and slipped her body over the side of the boat. Deborah said, quote, It was such a sad moment because we laid her naked body on the side of the raft and then decided we couldn't just roll her off. She needed some sort of funeral. So we said the Lord's Prayer in Psalm 23, and we gently pushed her body overboard. Do you know what Psalm 23 is? I'm sorry, I do not. That's okay. Then the only thing Brad and Deborah could stand to do was go back to sleep. Deborah and Brad probably were thinking that death was imminent. Again, they both had staph infections, and they were dying of thirst and hunger. Three of their group had died in the past 24 hours. They thought that after all they had endured, they may, have, they may meet their fate in the Atlantic Ocean, just like the others. Deborah tried to talk Brad into flipping the boat so they could rinse the bottom of it. Brad was attempting to do so, and he fell backward into the water. No. I know. At this point, it's kind of like you came this far, and now you're just going to be eaten by sharks. Mm-hmm. Um, she hadn't seen any sharks for four hours or something before they attempted to do that. So I think in their mind, they were like, all right, we're good. But he didn't have the strength to climb back in the raft. And she just sat there crying. She didn't attempt to help him or anything. She she just probably knew it was futile. Well, and she probably didn't have a lot of strength to help him back in anyway. And she's smaller than he is. Thankfully, he was able to eventually climb over the side of the raft. Or the dinghy. I should say the That's dinghy. Good. I was scared for him. I know. Um, like, no. Also, I did look it up. Psalm 23 is, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there you go. Thank you. Thank You're you welcome. very much for that. Yeah. I th- that's probably a good one. Yeah. I'm glad we didn't have to say it for Brad, too, though. Absolutely. Thankfully, like I said, Brad eventually got back into the boat, but it divided the two remaining survivors. He was pretty upset with her for that. Oh, for not helping her? Mm-hmm. For not helping him? Oh, yeah. Sorry. For not helping him. In the middle of all of this, Brad looks up, and he miraculously saw a cargo ship on the horizon. No way. It was actually probably not even on the horizon. It was close enough that he could see people on the deck, and they could see him. That's probably another one of these moments where they're like, are we hallucinating? Yeah, I think that's what they were initially thinking themselves. 
Deborah and Brad started yelling and screaming and waving their arms, and someone on the boat was doing the same thing in response. The boat was a passing Soviet cargo ship, Olengorsk. Hmm, I like that. That's better than Trash Man. Yeah, for sure. They jumped off the dinghy towards the boat. They just started swimming towards it. Okay, there better not be one more bad thing happening <laughs> when they get to the boat. I know. I thought that was a little bit ballsy because yeah. I'm sure the boat would have gone all the way up to the dinghy. Mm-hmm. They're not just going to be like, hi, bye. I'm sure you guys are good. <laughs> Looks like you're having fun. <laughs> they were able to extract them from the water safely and they returned the survivors to U.S. authorities. So the team had... They had drifted 140 miles or 225 kilometers, and they were going further towards the Atlantic, further from land and from any hope of rescue. With no beacon on the dinghy, the merchant ship that the Coast Guard originally had contacted was unable to find them. The Coast Guard called off the search for the trash man because mysteriously, it received a call stating that the yacht had made it safely into port during the storm. Weird. No one knows who made the call. And in my mark, that's what I was exactly thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking. No, we don't need this. I mean, nobody knows, but it's just totally speculative. But interesting. Here are a few quotes from Deborah. Again, from the Discovery Show, I Shouldn't Be Alive. Quote, every day I wake up and it's a new day and I'm happy. I always, always try to find something good in the bad things that happen to me. There's never a day that you're more thankful for life than the day you almost die. Surviving is about keeping your wits when everything is falling apart. I learn to accept people for who they are and for who they're not. God doesn't need me to judge anyone else. Deborah continued to sail even after all of her experiences on the dinghy and continued to Think about those fateful days on the dinghy, and she experienced flashbacks, too. She wrote, quote, One minute I would be standing in the shower washing my hair, and the next minute sitting on the tub sobbing uncontrollably. And I was never free of the dreams. End quote. Did she stay in touch with Brad? Um, It sounded like they remained close, but I didn't find a whole lot of information about that. Brad expressed a similar feeling about the experience, He said, quote, it's not something you just turn off when it's over. You keep living in that survival mode. I don't know if you're shell-shocked or what you are, but it's impossible to just turn it off and go back to the way you were before, end quote. I thought that really summarized it well. After Deborah was rescued, she moved back to Texas and worked as a fitness specialist and yoga instructor. And the story has been transformed by Deborah into a book called Albatross, The True Story of a Woman's Survival at Sea, which was released in 1994. And that led to a TV film called Two Came Back. And then it was turned into the episode of I Shouldn't Be Alive that we've talked about. And then a movie in 2019 called Capsized Blood in the Water, amongst a number of other media pieces. Um, Deborah also became a motivational speaker. Um, Unfortunately, Deborah died unexpectedly at the age of 52 in 2012 of unknown causes. And in conclusion, I was trying to find what Brad was up to and what he did with his life. And I really didn't find anything. He kind of slid off the grid. Maybe so. I mean, he was in that episode of I should, I shouldn't be Mm -hmm. alive, but 
I guess Deborah kind of took the lead mm-hmm. in writing the book and like. I guess that's kind of nice for him. Yeah, maybe he doesn't really want that to be a part of his daily life. Yeah, and for it to be what he is known for. Yeah, or famous for. Well, I'm famous for a lot of things, Tessa. I'm mm. just using it. <laughs> well, oh. that's all I have for you today. So I hope you enjoyed and um, have a good rest of your week. Yes, stay alive until next week. Bye. Bye-bye.